there's no way I was going to let 9-11 go by and not have a lot to say about it uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, One, I mean, this is obviously a particularly significant anniversary of 9-11. It's funny, you know, I was in the military. I didn't, I was kind of at peace every 9-11 anniversary because I didn't, um, I felt like my everyday life was a de facto memorial to 9-11. So I didn't see a special need to go out of my way uh, personally to commemorate 9-11 when I was in. But now that I'm no longer in, uh, I I feel like I have an obligation to talk about it, especially as I was, um, I don't know if the right word is privileged or burdened, but I happened to be at the Trade Center on 9-11-2001, and I happened to be in Afghanistan, almost at the end of our time there. So I feel like that's um, been poignant and uh, significant bookends of our time there. So, um, you know, it's given me a little bit of insight and and uh, given me a lot that I would like to say. So the other reason I want to do this episode is we are going to do a roundtable discussion on 9-11 and its impact. But I didn't want to get into my stuff uh, there. I really want to be able to listen to our guests. And um, on the off chance that I reference some of my experiences briefly or elliptically there, I thought, well, let me do an episode that maybe can air on 9-11 that kind of lays out my personal history with it. And then that frees me up from trying to interject myself or, or you know, uh, give a lot of my personal backstory uh, when we're doing the roundtable discussion. So that was kind of my thinking. Um, I really appreciate anybody that listens to this. I it's weird. I feel sort of guilty talking about it. I feel like it's um, this has been an incredibly personal. Uh, you know, nine eleven was a very personal event for me, and obviously for like it was for many many of us. Nine eleven was an inflection point in my life uh, that changed everything irrevocably um, from that moment on. But I still feel like it's an indulgence to be able to talk about it, um, and it's a privilege to talk about it. I hope it's not indulgent of me to go on about it. And I think in this solo episode, I probably throw out a lot more minutiae than I should, a lot of minute details uh, that many of you probably don't need to know to appreciate the story. Um, but I... Uh, but I've put them out there anyway, if for no other reason than to kind of capture it, uh, so it's on record, and I can maybe let that go and let some of that stuff uh, now sit out in the ether instead of in my brain. I don't know. Um, we'll see, or maybe I'll just bore my grandkids about this, you know, decades from now, still in as much excruciating detail as I give in this upcoming episode. We'll see. Anyway. Appreciate you guys sticking around for this. I hope you enjoy it and get a little bit of enlightenment, insight, satisfaction, catharsis, whatever, out of uh, what I say here. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this special episode of the Weekly Havoc. Normally, at the Weekly Havoc, uh, we hold a roundtable discussion of staff, writers, friends at a Havoc Journal. Uh, we try to make a little order out of chaos. Uh, this particular episode is obviously going to be a little bit different. So, um, I'm not going to lie. I'm coming out of a kind of two-week haze of dealing with Afghanistan-related um, issues. So uh, I'm still working on them, but I was able to get two consecutive decent nights of sleep. So I'm feeling infinitely more human than I was, uh, which I'm happy about. But uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm not in the most uh, focused headspace I could be in for um, the 9-11 episode. But because it's 9-11 and this is obviously a particularly poignant anniversary uh, after 20 years and after the pullout in Afghanistan, I uh, it it I really wanted to do this, and this has been um, 
2001 was was the pivotal moment in my life uh, for many reasons, as I'll get into shortly. And so, uh, you know, I will not try to be a method actor. I'm not going to try to gin myself into a lot of heavy emotions or anything. Uh, I'm just going to kind of take it where I'm at and um, let the story speak for itself. Um, I want to say I'm also doing this uh, and recording this right now because we are going to do a dedicated 9-11 episode with a bunch of great guests that I'm going to record on 9-11, but it obviously won't be ready on 9-11. And I wanted to have something uh, good to go on that day specifically. And I also didn't want to take up a lot of bandwidth of our panel discussion with my own personal story uh, because I really want to hear other people's stories. So I'm kind of doing mine and getting it out of the way now for those reasons. Okay. My 9-11 story is actually sort of funny to begin with. (laughs) So let me start there. Okay. My 9-11 story starts on, let's start it on Monday, September 10th, 2001. So on that Monday, I... um was I finally was selected Monday morning to be a juror on the very first it was my very first time ever being selected for a jury and the courthouse that I reported to was on or I think they put us into if I remember right they put us in a big bullpen um, in downtown New York City um, a few blocks from the Trade Center and we were in this big bullpen and they would call us and we'd go up and they'd bring us in and then do the voir dire process and screen out people that they didn't want to serve on juries. And I'd been through that for, I think, the previous week. At the time, I was working as a prison chaplain in New York City. So um, I uh, was working at Rikers Island. I was working at other correctional facilities. Um, but I'd taken the previous week off to uh, be on, sit on jury duty. And I hadn't been selected, but that Monday I was selected. And they said, great, you're on the jury. Go to the actual courthouse where this court is, this case is going to be tried. And that was at 71 Thomas Street, which is caddy corner to the World Trade Center. Um, if everybody knows what caddy corner is, I believe everybody does. I don't know how much of a New York term that is. I don't think I've ever heard a non-New Yorker say caddy corner. So I just assume that's something that only New Yorkers know. But anyway, it means at a diagonal to the Trade Center across the uh, street, uh, the Trade Center Plaza, I should say. So uh, I went over there and uh, the judge was this old dude. And he he came out and he, he was one of these kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, crotchety but pompous uh, older guys that – Really loved being a judge, you could tell, because he was God in that courtroom. And he came out and he gave a long-winded, I I mean, it must have been 90 minutes or two-hour-long introduction to the case. And it wasn't about the case, obviously, but giving us instructions as the jury. And I should clarify, I actually didn't make it on the jury. I was an alternate on the jury. So there was, um, you know, the people on the jury and then two of us alternates that were sitting off to the side. And um, at the time, I was working graveyard shifts as a proofreader to make money because prison chaplaincy didn't pay anything. So I just worked a graveyard shift on the Sunday night before, and now I was trying to stay awake in court on the Monday and get my instructions from the judge, and the judge made it as painful as possible. He went on and on and on at length about the area that they were in. And, you know, we're, we're bordering Tribeca and Robert De Niro has Nobu, which is a sushi restaurant right up a couple of blocks. And if you get a chance, maybe you want to go there. I mean, it was just, it was, it was this long winded, um, uh, uh, use of the bully pulpit where he just pontificated and I was having a brutal time staying awake. But the big takeaway that he said, is he said, you will not be late to my court. He's like, I will not hesitate for one second to fine you $500 if you are late for jury duty. Similarly, he said, these are my rules. You see the defendant, 
You see the lawyers, you see the the, uh, prosecutor, you see everybody that's in play. If you see them talking to each other and and the defendant um, or any witnesses uh, communicating, he's like, you have to let me know. That's an ethical no-no. I will not tolerate it. You need to report that to me immediately. I run a tight ship, blah, 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 blah. And then he pontificated again for several hours. So this is Monday. And uh, and I should just say what the case was. The case, and I'd sat on, I tried to get on juries for murders. There was a gang thing. I think there was a bank robbery. The case that they actually sat me for was a guy that twisted his ankle in uh, on on like the sidewalk outside of a part uh, a housing project and was suing the city. That's the case that I got. Um, so I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or an insult, but it certainly wasn't going to help me stay awake when I was running on fumes anyway. Um, but anyway, that was my big takeaway was from the judge and his instructions. So I leave court, go home, try to catch a little bit of sleep. I get a call from my temp agency. They said, okay, we got a job for you tonight. It's down at Brown and Wood, which was a law firm in the World Trade Center. I can't remember which tower. And I can't remember what floor they were on. I want to say it was like 65 or 85. It was way up there. And um, I'd worked there once before. Didn't particularly like it. But I was like, okay, well, so be it. Um, I'll go there tonight and you know, then I'll be back in court tomorrow. Uh, so I started to get a little bit more sleep, prepare to turn around really quickly and, and get to the, the job. Then the temp agency called me back. They said, never mind. We're going to send you to a different law firm on 59th Street in the FAO Schwartz building. You're going to work there tonight. I was like, all right, fine. That's better. Cool. So I went down there. I worked all night. And uh, the next morning, you know, I knew I had to be down at 71 Thomas Street. So the FAO Schwartz building is on 59th and 5th. And uh, on the east side of Manhattan, I finished my shift. I walked across the southern end of Central Park close to where my temp agency was, dropped off my temp agency slip in the little drop box they had in their building uh, next to Columbus Circle. Went over, got myself a Krispy Kreme donut. And I remember sitting in Columbus Circle itself, eating my Krispy Kreme donut as breakfast and preparing to take the subway down to uh, the World Trade Center and going, man, it is a gorgeous day out. It is beautiful and like noticeably jaw-droppingly beautiful. And I was like, well, I was like, can't be that bad. I mean, I know I'm exhausted and bleary-eyed and hating life because of my schedule, but I was like, but hey, you know, this is um, this is a gorgeous day. So I kind of took a deep breath, finished my Krispy Kreme, and hopped onto. I want to say it was the two or the three train. These are details I know that don't matter to most people. I I, I say this, I tell this story so infrequently that I don't. I kind of want to put it all out there, so it's just out there, and I don't have to remember this, and it's kind of captured for posterity. Um, so I'm putting in little details that New Yorkers might appreciate. I don't know how many other people might. So I took the train down to the Trade Center, and the way that the subway on the west side of Manhattan works is it pulled it the train the subway pulls directly underneath the World Trade Center. So I, uh, I don't remember there being delays, but I, we got down to the trade center and the subway doors opened and I was like, holy crap, there were a ton of people on the platform going in both directions, uh, mostly trying to go up the stairs and out of the subway station. And I was like, all right, this is insane. I mean, I'm used to traveling at rush hour in New York city, but this was beyond normal. It was you know, at a standstill where you really, you know, or have to lower your shoulder and drive through people um, to to kind of get where you want to go, and and so clearly something was happening, and I kind of forced my way to the stairwell and started working my way up the steps, and I remember a, a kid, a guy my age, twenty something, was walking towards me down the steps, going to get the subway. And for some reason, he and I made eye contact and he just looked at me and he said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. I was like, okay. I was like, well, what kind of moron of a pilot doesn't see the World Trade Center coming? You know, I was like, well, this will be something to, no wonder we got the crowd. Now I understand. 
and let me keep going up there and let me take a look at whatever this freak show is going to be that we're going to see up here because I'm sure this will make all the papers because how often does something this colossally stupid happen? So I got up to the street level and the where I where I got out, where the actual exit was, was across the street from the World Trade Center. So I had a little bit of a view um, and I could see smoke pouring out and all that, but I you know, looked at my uh, I think I had a beeper at the time and I looked at that to see what time it was. And I was like, oh, well, this is all well and good, but I got to get to court because that judge said he was going to fine me $500 if I was late and I don't have $500 to spare. So I started walking up the street and again, lowering my shoulder, working my way through the crowds that were just standing there gawking at the World Trade Center. And uh, I got to the courthouse and kind of, again, turned around, looked, shot a look at the World Trade Center, saw a big gaping hole. And I was like, God, that's going to be a bitch to fix. I was like, well, all right, I don't have time to stand here and gawk. I got to get to court because I'm not getting in trouble for this. So I walked in the court and the court was empty. And there was a, you know, metal detector and a security scan and, a, you know, all the normal stuff you would have in a, in a, a courthouse. And the uh, court officers kind of, you know, had me empty my pockets and I went through and there was nobody else there. And they all kind of seemed distracted. And I was like, wow, I was like, people are really losing focus over this World Trade Center thing. I was like, all right, a lot of people are going to be paying fines then because I'm not going to be late. So I picked up my stuff, put it in my pockets, walked over to the courtroom, which is up some stairs and down a hallway and uh, came to the courthouse, the courtroom door and pulled on it. And there's two big wooden doors. And I pulled on it and it was locked. And I was like, all right, well, looked at my beeper, got about 10 minutes till I'm supposed to be here. So I'm on time. It's locked. I got it. World Trade Center, some stupid pilot hit it. People are distracted, a little spaced out, Did forgot to open up the courtroom. Cool. I'm just going to sit here and chill until they open it up because nobody's going to be able to say that I was late. So I sat down rested my back against the doors and waited. And after a few minutes, this court officer came walking up to me and he was an older guy. I mean, late fifties, maybe even in his sixties, um, did not look like he was in good shape and he was wearing body armor, which seemed very strange. And he walked up to me and said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm on the jury. And he said, yeah, court's canceled. And I was like, okay, are you saying this or did the judge say this? Because if you if, if it's just you saying this, sorry, you can pay my $500 fine then. I need to see, see something that says the judge said this and that this is actually closed. And he kind of rolled his eyes and was like, trust me, it's, it's, it's not happening today. I was like, okay, what's your name? What's your badge number? All right, I'm taking all this down because I am not going to pay this fine no matter what. And he's like, fine. So I take it all down feel like I've done my due diligence. And I'm like, all right, well, I now have the whole day in front of me. Um, got a bit of a ride to get back uptown. Might as well go outside and see this mess that's happened out there. So I walked out the courthouse steps and one of the first people I see in this throng, and I mean a mass of people that are filling up the streets, uh, hundreds of thousands. And I mean, it, that area, you know, if you've ever been to that area at rush hour, you know what rush hour looks like. You know what busy looks like. This was wall-to-wall people going across the street. And I was like, wow, this is really getting some eyeballs. All right. Well, I'm glad I'm here and I get to witness, you know, this this little bit of chaos. But the first people I see right at the bottom of the steps of the courthouse are <laughs> the I think it was the the defense attorney and some witnesses that they had introduced to us yesterday just so we could recognize them uh you know by name or by face or whatever and and understand that they shouldn't be talking to each other and sure enough they were all talking to each other now they were pointing at the world trade center but i was like hey what the hell you guys are talking to each other i didn't say this to them i was just sitting there making mental notes i was like oh you guys are screwed we get back into court i am diming you out to the judge cuz i see a little I mean, you, you can point at the building all you want, but you're not supposed to be talking. And the judge was very long-winded about that, that you are not supposed to be talking to each other. So this is where my head was at. And I looked around me, you know, now, now that I had, you know, 
was preparing to be, you know, a, a world-class snitch. I looked around me and kind of took in the rest of the scene. I remember seeing a group of kind of Puerto Rican high school kids and they were kind of pointing at the World Trade Center and laughing. Everybody was, you know, it was a circus. Everybody was like, oh, wow, here we are watching this freaking crazy thing happen that will probably be in the history books. And then you started to see the people at the top of the World Trade Center in the gaping hole. And that was when, uh, at first, it's a thought experiment. At first, it was like, holy shit, if that was me up there, what would I be doing? And then it was like, holy shit, people are really going to die here. And it's funny, as a, as a kind of jaded New Yorker, your first thoughts are, A, the inconvenience, B, the freak show, circus aspects of it. But you're not thinking outside of that scope. And this is a very I, – I don't want to speak for all New Yorkers, but I feel pretty comfortable saying that's a very New York City way of viewing problems in my experience. But then to see the people up there and to suddenly have your mind start to change and to understand uh, the very epic and epically grim – outlook that they were facing started to sober me up. And then you saw the people drop. And to see the little piped figures here and there that would fall. And from my vantage point, my view of Tower 1 and Tower 2 was obscured by 7 World Trade Center, which was a smaller building. I can't remember how story, how many stories, like four or seven stories. It's not very tall, but it obscured your view of the ground. And so when you saw people falling, they would fall and then they would disappear behind 7 World Trade Center. And you could hear the rattle and the breaking of glass as their bodies hit. Uh, the atrium on the plaza or hit Seven World Trade Center or hit wherever. And that was um, the moment that I suddenly kicked myself and said, hey, motherfucker, you're supposed to be a goddamn chaplain. Well, what are you going to do about this? And I dropped down on my knees and I started saying the Lord's Prayer because I just said, I don't know what else to do for them. This is the most I can think to do. And I thought if I was up there, that's what I'd want people that couldn't physically help me to at least do for me. And that was, um, that seemed incredibly ineffectual. But it was the best I could do in that moment. And then, um, so what I didn't realize at the time was the second plane had been the plane that had just hit the Trade Center. I didn't know there were two planes that had hit. All I saw was one big gaping hole. But I, I think I watched for a couple more minutes. And then I remember, and I've never heard anyone else talk about this publicly, so um, I, I never knew what this was about. It was just one of these things that I think happens in a mass hysteria situation. But I remember somebody, like a cry came up from the people gathered, hey, they're pulling the plane out. Now, I, you know, I mean, I could kind of see the plane, but I didn't know who they were. I didn't see the plane moving anywhere particularly. But people started saying, hey, they're pulling the plane out. They're pulling the plane out. And they're, there was a stampede that I've never been a part of anything like that in my life before or since. There is nothing like the absolute chaotic, adrenalized wave of humanity caught up in extreme panic, running in the same direction uh, desperately. And it was just these wall-to-wall bodies turning almost in unison and running 
And what the and the biggest thing I remember was this thunderclap sound. And it was all the electronics hitting the ground. People dropped cell phones, beepers, camcorders, um, all this stuff just dropped. And it and, but it dropped almost in unison. It was just this thunderclap. And I remember very clearly. And I was running with everybody else because somebody's saying we're, they're pulling the plane out. And I just start seeing these cell phones smack the ground in front of me. So I start bending down and scooping them up because somebody dropped their cell phone and they're probably going to want it back. And I remember thinking a couple of thoughts that were way too intellectual for that moment. One was, wow, we as a society have a lot of electronics on us now. Five years ago, there would not have been a thunderclap of electronics hitting the ground when people are panicking and dropping whatever they're holding. And then the second thought is, hey, this is expensive stuff. Don't you guys want this? So I'm scooping it up and kind of clutching a bunch of cell phones. And and then finally, it just hit me. I was like, what am I doing? This is uh, – people are running for their lives. And I was like – and that little – switch in my brain went on of what do you do when your actual life is in danger? And I was like, okay, screw this. And I just started sprinting and stopped trying to pick up stuff. So we sprinted up, I think if I remember right, we sprinted sprinted up a couple blocks to White Street. I think it was like two blocks away. And we sprinted up and suddenly the crowd just started to slow down. And this again, this mass hysteria suddenly dissipated. And everybody was like, oh, okay, wait. The tower's not coming down. The plane's not coming down. All right. And so everybody just kind of slowed down and turned around. And and we turned around and now we even had a better view of the Trade Center because now we weren't quite under it as much as we had been. Now we were a bit further away. And I remember looking up and I had the cell phones and all that that I'd scooped up and I kind of put those in pockets. I was like, I don't know, I'll figure out a way to get those back to people later or something. But um, I remember looking up at, at the Trade Center and um, you know, now you could see the gaping hole, and I was like, God, that's gonna be a bitch to fix. I don't know how you would even begin to do that. And then realizing, man, those are tall buildings. And instead of being gobsmacked by the size, just as some kind of novelty or curiosity, I was suddenly acutely aware that if those buildings fell, their span, uh, the span of of uh, the radius of of um uh, debris would easily engulf where I was. And I was like, well, they're not falling right now. And I've got a front row seat to this. So I'm not going to give that up. Like any New Yorker knows, you don't give up a front row seat to anything. Um, but I was like, but I'm acutely aware that, uh, man, if those buildings fall, I, I better get on my horse real quick. So we were watching and suddenly we started to become aware or I started to become aware, maybe others already were, of the police and the firefighters coming through. And people started to get out of the street itself, out of West Broadway. We were standing on West Broadway and White Street. And um, the crowd started to part and get on the sidewalks as fire trucks started um, coming down West Broadway. And the police had started to set up a bit of a cordon line right in front of me to um, stop us from getting any closer to the Trade Center. And we saw FBI agents out there and their FBI windbreakers. And um, and I remember uh, specifically looking at the fire trucks coming down West Broadway. And I remember making eye contact with firefighters who were staring out the window, as you do when you're riding a rig, and um, you know, looking at them. And I'm a 20-something, and many of them were 20-somethings. And I was like, well, there before the grace of God go I. I was like, man, that's a hell of a job. You know, I never really thought about firefighting before. I never thought of it, you know, what that entails and the dangers that involves. And, you know, I knew it was there. I knew what it was, obviously. But, I, you know, you never really put yourself in those shoes. And now suddenly this was um, my epiphany moment where I was like, wow, you're really, you know, code three lights and sirens tearing your way towards danger while the rest of us are running away. And I'm not going to lie. My memory gets a little hazy because um, I think I was sleep deprived. Obviously, it was a significant emotional event. And I can't remember totally 
what happened to me and what I saw on the news later in some of these events. So I'm, I'm only going to relate the stuff that I actually really do remember happening to me on the ground. Um, but from what I remember, um, I was watching that one fire engine go by and looking at the guys inside and they were looking out the windows at us and they went past us and past the cordon and towards the trade center. And that's when we heard the crack. And again, it was yet another thunderclap. And that, and I, okay, this is, I said, I was only going to say what I remember. I, I can't remember if I saw this or if I'm just remembering this from uh, TV and from the news uh, loop after, but I, I believe I remember actually watching long enough to see the building start to slide and, and that, that crack develop and widen until it started to slide. And, uh, but I do remember the thunderclap of it breaking and of suddenly the building is going to fall and turning around and running for my life. And at the same time, thinking of the firefighters I'd just seen and going, they're going, they're driving right into that. And we ran and we ran up to Canal Street on West Broadway. And um, I don't remember. I, I, again, I keep saying I'm only going to talk about what I remember, but but I just to give you a full picture, I, I don't remember if the ash from that building caught up to me or not at that time. I, I feel like it did from you know, like from the news, like because I, I, I had dust, I had ash and all that on my shoes and everything, but. Um, but I don't remember being engulfed, but I remember preparing to be engulfed and just running and squeezing my eyes closed and squeezing my mouth and, and everything and just going, oh man, this thing is going to, um, I, I feel like I did see the, the rolling waves of ash coming towards me, um, and going, holy crap, I got to outrun this. And by the time we hit canal street for whatever reason, maybe it's just cause everybody was kind of had already stopped there. Um, I, I knew it was safe to stop and we stopped and turned around and everything behind us was gray. And it's, I think it's important to say, I mean, the 1990s in New York city had really been a Renaissance. Um, thanks mostly to Rudy Giuliani, um, before he lost his mind, <laughs> but that's a different story. Um, but it really been a renaissance. And New York City was, again, a wildly colorful and exciting and uh, vibrant place and full of arts and culture. And I certainly wanted to be part of that. And to turn around and see gray blanketing everything behind me was jarring. This colorless, grim... Um, sign of death. And the other tower was still up. It hadn't come down yet. But now the the full poignancy of this day had really started to hit home with, I think, all of us that were there, certainly with me. And we all knew, or I knew, it was only a matter of time before the second building would come down. And I think for myself and uh, to the best of my, of what I could tell everyone else there, no one wanted to leave until it was over that we'd been here this long. We're not leaving now. We're going to see this thing through and bear witness to it. And I remember, and this is kind of perverse, but I remember <clears throat> looking around me and I saw a Rastafarian bike messenger. I saw like this couple, like a young, like kind of backpacky kind of couple. Um, I saw the school kids. I saw this wide mix of New Yorkers, all the socioeconomic, the business people to the bike messengers, you know, the, the, just the wide spectrum of humanity that New York features as few other cities can wide range of races economic situations, all that, all of us were there together and every single person was sobbing. And in a very perverse way, 
I remember wondering, boy, what does this do for us as a country that we're all united in this moment, united in our grief, united in our heartbreak? And I knew, I mean, that's not something you want to vocalize, um, but I was like, um, the, the unity of that moment made you so close to everyone else. Um, and you felt this kinship with your fellow New Yorkers. And we were feeling it for those that now were no longer with us. So we stuck around until the second tower came down and the second tower we watched completely. Um, and there I do remember seeing the, the ash and the smoke come towards us and everybody was prepared to run but it died down by the time it got to us. And it was, it was anticlimactic, you know, it was powerful and poignant, but we were already shell-shocked. We were already, you know, um, gobsmacked and jaws were on the floor, but we, but this was just kind of the final, the final denouement where we could now figure out what to do next. And when that second uh, building came down, a cry kind of came up. There had been a lot of con- there was a lot of construction work on Canal Street with uh, construction guys that had been doing work, and they started to shout out. They're like Union, Union, Union. They're like, "Who's a Union member? Who's got your Union card?" And they're like, "Let's go. We're going in there. We're going in there. We're pulling people out. Let's go." And the police uh, at the cordon line like were physically pushing the construction workers back. And, uh, and that was, you know, um, it, it seemed noble of the construction workers and it seemed pointless. Um, you know, there's, uh, sorry, there's one point that I, I missed in, in this, uh, that I, I just want to point out cause I think it's an interesting detail, but when we were running from white street to canal street, I remember seeing and uh, I remember this very clearly seeing an FBI agent in his windbreaker and he was kind of, you know, in his best, uh, uh, you know, kind of calm, cool, collected voice saying to everybody, guys, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow. And his eyes just started to drift up to the trade center and he kind of couldn't even speak because it was just so monumental what was happening in front of him. And I remember seeing people just grab that FBI agent by his arms and just start dragging him with us up the street. And there's something about seeing uh, a well-trained professional uh, not lose his composure, but just be overtaken by the event and need rescuing himself that was – Jarring, and and yet again another another kind of uh, added to the emotional disturbance of of the day for me. Anyway, I digress. So as I was saying, uh, then the union guys were told, "Hey, you can't go in there." The cops really locked it down. Finally, uh, eventually, the fatigue just overwhelmed me, and I was like, "All right, I got to go home." And obviously, the subways were all closed now. So I was like, "All right, well, it looks like I'm walking the length of Manhattan Island to go home." So started walking. And so was everybody else. And we started walking up and, and, you know, uh, was used to walking. I loved walking in the city. So it wasn't new to me, but it was tiring when you're already exhausted and kind of emotionally drained. But what I started noticing is that everybody, uh, that was parked on the street, a lot of people had their car radios on and they had the car, the, the doors to their cars open and people were clustering around cars and I wasn't paying any attention. I was just trying to get home. And then somewhere around Green Street in Soho, uh, I suddenly heard in 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 national or in uh, and today our our top story is the Pentagon. Blah 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 blah. And I was like, what? Your top story is something about the Pentagon, motherfucker? The Trade Center just collapsed, and you have something that you have to tell us about the Pentagon. And then a couple blocks later, you know, I heard something else again. I'm like. Well, what is this with national news? The World Trade Center just collapsed. Who knows how many thousands of people just died there? And of course, I'm thinking about the people I could have been working with at Brown and Wood the night before. Um, 
who I didn't particularly like, but I was like, Jesus Christ, I was almost there. And, and, you know, I mean, I didn't get along with him, but I didn't want to see him dead. That's for damn sure. So, you know, I was like, Jesus, you know, they, they're victims of this and what the fuck all that. So it took me a, a couple blocks until finally I slowed down enough to listen to the car radio and suddenly realized, wait, what, what happened at the Pentagon? And I was like, wait, wait, this was an attack. This was purposeful. And suddenly my mind just was blown. I, I, I like my whole mindset changed. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? This was a purposeful attack. And now my thought went to all my college buddies who I knew who were in the military and to some high school buddies that were in the military. And I was like, Jesus, we're going to war, man. I was like, I don't know who did this, but if this was an attack, we're going to war, which nobody's been at in a generation. I was born on the very day that the Vietnam War ended. So I was like, holy crap. This day just keeps getting more and more and more significant. And as I, I remember walking, by the time I made it to the east side, I was walking up Lexington Avenue, and I remember seeing a couple of businessmen in front of me, and they were kind of slouching and walking, and they're like, well, I guess I'm going into the bar and getting a drink. And they kind of peeled off and went into this downstairs bar off the sidewalk. And I remember that pissing me off so much. And I was like, where's your fucking, where's your gonads, man? Your country was just attacked and your response is to go bury yourself in booze. And I was really tempted. I was like, no, the right answer is to walk into the recruiter right now. I was like, but first I'm going to get some sleep. And I, uh, again, this is mostly a pre-cell phone era. Cell phones were around, but... I didn't have one, and, and I think it wasn't still ubiquitous the way it is now. So I, I remember I remember going, "Hey, I'm not getting any beeps, any pages coming across here." But I knew my mom would be worried about me, so I stopped on 33rd Street and I pulled out some quarters and I made a call on the payphone to her, and she was like, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm fine." I was like, "I'll be home in a little bit and all that," and. Um, I found out after the fact that she had been trying to do calls for work that morning and none of her calls were going through and she got really pissed off and called the operator and said, hey, what the fuck is going on with our service? Why can't I get any calls through? We pay our bills on time. There's no reason why our service should be cut. And the operator kind of said, ma'am, are you looking at the TV right now? My mom was like, no, of course not. She's like, well, why don't you turn it on? And then if you still feel that way, you can call me back. And so my mom suddenly was you know, caught off guard by this as well. So I called her and she was feeling much better and, um, and the, to at least know I was okay. And then I kept trudging home and I, <laughs> just because the day was strange and I hope I'm not, I hope this isn't boring. Uh, let me just stop and, and kind of sanity check myself. Let me pull back and, and emotionally detach. I, I hope the details are interesting to me. It's interesting, but I lived it and I'm remembering this for the first time in a while. Um, I hope it's interesting to everyone else, uh, but to me, the story of 9-11 that day was just one crazy event after another that kept adding on significance to the day. And the last piece of that was as I was walking up Lexington Avenue, I you know, everyone was walking uptown because everyone was basically coming from downtown and trying to get to wherever they were trying to get to. But if you're crossing a bridge, if you're going uptown, you needed to go up. There was only one person I saw going downtown, and he was walking right down the middle of Lexington Avenue. Everybody was trying to keep the streets clear because police and fire and everybody else was going up and down those, the, the streets themselves, the avenues themselves. But there was one person walking the, the opposite direction right down the middle of Lexington Avenue, and it was Burt Young. If anybody knows who that is, the actor who played Rocky's brother, brother-in-law, Paulie. In, 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 you know, the Sylvester Stallone movies. So Burt Young is walking down the middle of Lexington Avenue looking shell-shocked, but then again, Burt Young kind of always looks shell-shocked. Um, I mean, he's just kind of slouching and walking down Lexington Avenue. And I was like, Jesus, if a fucking pink elephant started tap dancing in front of me, this day couldn't get any stranger. But that was my 9-11. And I got home and I was 
covered in crap and, and, you know, ash and, and dirt, and all that stuff. And, um, I went and I slept and I remember that night there was a thunderstorm. So of course I woke up in the middle of the night, scared out of my mind because I kept hearing thunderclaps, which sounded like both the trade centers collapsing and all those cell phones dropping when I was trying to run away. So to not really be going on much sleep over the last, you know, whatever it would have been, 72, 96 hours, whatever, um, and then have all that happen, I was I was kind of, you know, a little PTSD'd after that, I guess. Um, and uh, and I remember, uh, you know, my mom kind of saying to me, hey, you know, relax, relax. Just It's just the, it's just the um, you know, a rainstorm. And uh, that was comforting, but the most comforting sound I heard that night and the next day or the next week even was the sound of the jets overhead and to hear America at war and to hear the jets screaming over Manhattan Island. And I was like, fuck yeah, we're going to war and we're going to take some motherfuckers out and we will be safe. And I remember sitting in my room at the time and looking at all the the VHS cassettes of all the movies I owned, the posters I had on the wall, all this stuff of color and life and vibrancy, and all of it not meaning anything. And for the first time in my very privileged American life, I was aware of what it was like for your life to be in danger and for your entire society to be under attack, where none of that shit means anything. I remember looking at the Mel Brooks movies that I loved. And I was like, my God, none of that means anything. I just saw 3,000 of my neighbors die today. That shit doesn't mean anything. And that changed my life from that moment on. Um, okay. I wanted to share that story. Uh, I will kind of put a little coda at the end of this just to talk about kind of what ended up happening um, to me just personally, my own personal journey. And I'll I'll make it very quick because I don't want to belabor it too much. Um, But I did not join the military after 9-11. I really believed, first off, I I thought, I think we'll we'll win this quickly. And I was like, I don't want to join and then go, oh, by the way, you got out of boot camp and the war's over. But also I was really committed to my work in the prisons. And I was trying to be a better person than I was, if I'm honest about my chaplaincy career. Um, and I thought, uh, I thought the work I'm doing is incredibly important and I can fight terrorism here in the prisons because I'm already dealing face to face with a lot of bad actors and there's good. And this threat is here and, um, and the threat was in the prisons and that's a story for a different time. But, uh, but you know, I was seeing radical, uh, fundamentalism, come up in the prisons at that time. And I was like, okay, well, this is my mission then. And I will stay here and I will continue to do this important work. Uh, and that was that's the wiser course of action. In retrospect, I probably shouldn't have. I probably should have joined right away, but I didn't. When I did join, when I in, did end up joining, which was six years later, a little under six years later, um, I joined at a time that I thought that that I couldn't believe I was still needed for the war. I thought the war, obviously at that point, it was no longer Afghanistan we're talking about. It was also Iraq. Um, But I was heartbroken to look around and see that no one wanted to join the military. And when I went to basic, uh, the starship that our basic training platoon was located in, the starship, for those that don't know, is kind of a – does the name suggest kind of an alien looking building where they drop basic training platoons, um, at least at Fort Sill. I don't know if everybody, if every basic training base calls them starships, but at Fort Sill where I was, that's what they called them. Um, there were, I believe eight bays in our starship. Only three of them had platoons. The rest were all empty. Um, that, that early euphoria of nine 11 had long since died out. And now it was very hard to get people uh, in those later Bush years to join the military. Um, So I thought, well, 
that's why I'm here because you need that second wave of people that are willing to join. So, uh, anyway, that's, uh, kind of the brief coda that I'll leave there because I won't do a whole biographic sketch, but, um, that was nine 11 to me. So to be there at the beginning of nine 11 and then to be in Afghanistan, uh, a year ago, kind of dangerously close to what ended up being the, the bitter end of Afghanistan, uh, gives me two very bittersweet bookmarks, not even bittersweet, bitter bookmarks around uh, the global war on terror and our involvement in it. And as I've said repeatedly, we will be back there in Afghanistan. I don't know when, but I, I absolutely know we will because we can't afford not to be. Um, but for now, as we start to relearn why we went to Afghanistan in the first place, as we take this tactical pause and um, delude ourselves that we're that our involvement there is over, uh, it's worth looking back at how we got there and why we got there and what the significance of 9-11 uh, has meant, at least uh, to some of us. Okay. So, uh, got a little maudlin, hopefully not too soapy for everybody, but, um, appreciate you guys, uh, indulging me and listening to my nine 11 experience. Uh, obviously, you know, I don't want to gild the lily here and, and talk too much about it, but, um, I appreciate you guys hearing me out. Let me leave it at that. I appreciate very much that you guys indulge me on this. I do feel like it's an indulgence, um, I, I I promise I don't actually enjoy talking about this very much, but I, I feel like it, it is important to actually talk about and um and not just blow it off um or or take it for granted that people understand nine eleven or its significance or what it actually meant on that day, at least from my perspective. Okay. If you haven't already subscribed, you know the script. Do so. If you're on iTunes, we'd love the five star review. Uh, there probably won't be any show notes. Um, well, I take it back. There will be show notes. I'm going to put all the organizations on there that I personally know of that are doing amazing, impactful, significant work in Afghanistan right now. Again, because the the war is not over there uh, as much as we're deluding ourselves that it is. And these are organizations that are keeping the faith and sustaining our allies right now. Uh, which is good because we're going to need them again very soon. So I will put them in the show notes so that people that want to know more about them, maybe even want to contribute, can do so. Uh, If there's anything I want to put an alibi to, I'll do that. I don't think I will, but if I do, I'll do it. Again, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.